Okay, let me open in prayer, and then we'll jump back in where we left off last week. Oh, Father, this morning we come to just study, study both the Bible and what people in church history have thought about theology, about how it applies to our world, our government, our lives. Lord, give us wisdom and knowledge as we learn these things. Let us apply them. Help us to see the mistakes of the past so that we don't make them in our future and Help us to be encouraged by those who stood firm in the faith. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we jumped into the Middle Ages. Who knows a rough date for the Middle Ages? Anybody? Remember the date? 500. 500, roughly, um, is what we're going to use. Really, the fall of the Roman Empire, 476. But we just rounded off to 500. Um, We're looking at the church of the Middle Ages. We talked about the early church. The early church was a really emphasizing the gospel and defending what? What was the main doctrine in the early church that was often under attack? Deity of Christ. Really, anything to do with the Trinity. I mean, after the deity of Christ came the Holy Spirit. But the main defense was on the deity of Christ. Most heretical issues and sects and cults um, came from wrong thinking about the deity of Christ. So we went through the Middle Ages and we just talked. I'm going to skip some of these because we've already looked at those. Uh, We looked at... Leo. And Leo was the first bishop of Rome to really um, emphasize Rome over all the other major Christian cities. And we talked about the good and bad from Leo. The good was that he wrote this book, The Tome, one of the first systematic theologies that defended the deity of Christ. It was so important that they used it at some of the councils to help them think through Christ being fully God, truly God. The issues, though, with Leo is that he emphasized that the bishop of Rome should have the final say in the Christian world at this time. That because Rome is where the emperor was, where the empire was seated, and also founded by the apostle Peter, they said, according to Matthew 16. Um, We, of course, disagree with the Catholic Church on that. But this is where we start to get the seeds of what we call today Roman Catholicism. This is not... Full-blown Council of Trent Roman Catholicism. This is not what you see today if you were to walk into a Catholic church. But these are the seed bed. This is the, the place where seeds are being planted and will be watered over time to emphasize that the Bishop of Rome has authority to dictate theology and scriptural interpretation. Also, practice ecclesiological practice in the church. So then we talked about Justinian in the East, and we just looked at some, some things that were happening in the Eastern Roman Empire, military conquest. He took back much of the um, Western Roman Empire, but much of it's still ruled by what we once called barbarians, like the Frankish kingdom, kingdom of the, the Visigoths. And then we looked at um, his influence theologically. We also looked here, and I think this is where we ended, Gregory the Great. He's the next bishop of Rome. By this point, we'll just go ahead and start calling him the Pope. The Pope just means father, papa. Um, it's, it's really an Italian word. Uh, pope meaning the father of the whole church, the universal church. Remember, Catholic just means universal. So Catholic was used early on to say we're part of the universal church. Catholic was a good term. We could still use it. Little c if we use it. You know, uh, It's just a universal church. We're part of the one true universal church. And this is how the early church fathers spoke of it. So we were looking here at this guy, Gregory. 
So the gospel goes out. Gregory was known for sending out missionaries. Not, not Patrick. He had already gone to Ireland by this time. But Gregory sent Augustine of Canterbury, who took the gospel to England, to Britain. And some of the early kings there, the Anglo-Saxon kings, believed. And they, the, the way they converted their soldiers in the country was you either get baptized and become a Christian or die. So not such a good thing for these early kings of Britain. Eventually, though, the, the country would become Christian. Let's just pick up here. From a political perspective, Gregory, this is the Bishop of Rome, Gregory, the Great, we call him today, or the church, the Roman Catholic Church calls him that. Gregory began to forge good relations with the Franks, which would become important later as the Roman church would become allied with these Germanic kings. So the Franks had come in and taken over much of ancient Gaul, what we call the area of France today. And France and Germany and Spain are going to become some of the major... Once barbarians, but now Christian kingdoms in Europe. Uh, Gregory is also credited with working to improve communication and relations between the church in the West and in the East. So remember, there's a language barrier. The Eastern Empire, or what's just called the Byzantine Empire as we look back at it, they speak Greek. Their theology, their practice in the church, their worship is becoming more and more Easternized, more and more greek the West is Latin. It's more and more Romish or Roman. So as we look at one of the reformers' perspective on Gregory, this is what John Calvin had to say. He said that uh, Gregory had some good things to, to, to say, to write about. He cites Gregory on a number of occasions in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But he often cites Gregory to show how corrupt the Roman Catholic Church had become since that time. So he'll say, look at what Gregory said way back in the 500s. And now look at where we're at today. Look how far the Roman Catholic Church has changed. How far they've gone in their theology. So Calvin seems to be citing Gregory primarily in order to make a rhetorical point. He's not endorsing everything that Gregory taught. And we don't either as we talk about these men in church history. Like Augustine, a great hero of the faith. He had some errors in his theology. He had some things that we don't agree with. The same with Athanasius. I mean, Athanasius thought the best thing to do would be a monk uh, in a cave in the desert somewhere. And he wrote this great book called On the Incarnation. So just because we look to these men and sometimes even women of church history does not mean we have to agree with everything, sign off on everything they thought, taught, said, believed. So here's a couple of examples regarding the fact that many Roman Catholic priests were neglecting their responsibility as teachers of God's word. Calvin says, it appears that in the time of Gregory, some of the seeds of this corruption existed. The rulers of churches having begun to be more negligent in teaching. For he thus bitterly complains, the world is full of priests, and yet laborers in the harvest are rare. For we indeed undertake the office of the priesthood, but we perform not the work of the office. So they're calling the pastor the priest by this point. And that's because they're, they're structuring a, more of a hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church at this time, or early Roman Catholic Church. But look how Calvin mentions Gregory. He says, look, even in Gregory's day, Gregory understood that preaching was important. And the priests, there were plenty of those, but they weren't actually preaching the word. They want to undertake the office, but they don't want to perform the work. And the main work was supposed to be preaching and teaching the word. I said two examples. That's just one. I think I cut the other one for sake of time. All right, so moving into a slightly new section here. We're still in the early Middle Ages. 
And this is now where politics began to, to mix more and more with the church. The Western church crowns a holy Roman emperor, Charlemagne. So there were emperors before this, and there were Christian emperors before this. But those emperors were not called the holy Roman emperor. This is something new. And this is really a, a man, Charlemagne, wanting to claim the title of emperor. And who's going to give it to the Who's going to give it to him? Who has the right and authority to give it to him? The Bishop of Rome. Because he has continued on in his office since the time that the Western Empire fell. He's sort of the leader of Rome, at least in, in name and in thought. So he'll give to this new, great, wonderful King Charlemagne. Charlemagne just means uh, Charles the Great. He'll give him the title of emperor. So here's some older paintings, medieval paintings, um, much later than Charlemagne. But this is somewhat accurate, what his crown looked like, what he may have looked like. Much different than what we see as far as Roman emperors. Now, now the beard, that's a very barbarian thing. So guys who are growing beards these days want to look more barbarian than Roman. So by the late 6th century, Francia or Francia had emerged as a powerful kingdom and what had once been part of the Western Roman Empire. So the Franks were a dominant force in Europe. They had carved out a kingdom from much of the previous Roman Empire in the West. In 687, a man named Pippin, that's not a Lord of the Rings character, this is actually a real person's name, Pippin of Herstal became the sole governor of the Franks under the token reign of the Merovingian king. So the Merovingians reign, but they're kind of, not great generals. They're a little bit lazy. They hire their generals and they hire this guy named Pippin. And so Pippin is the leader. His son is named Charles Martel. And Charles Martel becomes the governor to rule over this area. And he's best remembered for defeating the Muslim forces in 732 at the Battle of Tours. And he halts the advance of Islam into Europe. So remember, Islam is going along the African coast uh, taking one country after another, one area after another. Then they cross over into Spain. They take what we, we call Spain today or the Iberian Peninsula. They're going to come up into Europe now and start taking the area of modern-day France. They're stopped in 732, a decisive battle. They never come back and try to take that part of Europe. In 732, the, the hero of that battle is Charles Martel. Charles the Hammer in French. Martel is, I think, Hammer. And that's just a cool name, Charles the Hammer. Name your kids that, Charles the Hammer. There he is. He doesn't have a hammer. He's not Thor or anything like that. But he has uh, an axe. That's what they fought with in this time. So Charles had two sons, Charles the Hammer, Charles Martel. He has two sons, Carloman and Pippin the Short. So you're going to continue the name Pippin, this time Pippin the Short. And they succeeded him in governing the Frankish kingdom. When Carloman stepped down from his post, Pippin the Short becomes king of the Franks in 754. So the Merovingian kings are, are done. The dynasty's ended. And a new dynasty, a new succession from one family starts. This is the Carolingian dynasty. So it's named after Charles the Hammer, Charles Martel. But really it's known today for Charlemagne, the great king from that dynasty. Uh, so this transition was supported by the Pope, Pope Zachary, Pope Stephen. If you wanted to take over countries at this time and even further into the Middle Ages, you got the Pope's permission. You got the Pope's permission to do a lot of things back then. 
So the popes agree this was a, a fine idea. So Charlemagne is the oldest son of Pippin the Short. So he begins his reign in 768. And he ruled with his brother, another Carloman, until his brother died. So now he is the sole king of this area. And he wants to take more territory. And he wants to be eventually declared the new emperor. Because there is no emperor in the West. The emperor has been deposed in 476. There's an emperor in the East. And you can see this idea of organizing all of Christianity under this emperor and the West again. Another painting here of Charlemagne. So the Pope named Hadrian in 772 demanded that a, a tribe of, of people called the Lombards give lands back to the Pope. By this time, the church in Rome is taking land. And they have owned some land, but it's been taken away by the Lombards. And he says, give this land back to us. This is mine. You guys are Christians, you Lombards. Give it back to the Christian leader, the Pope. They say, forget you, Pope. And their armies are coming to, to teach the Pope a lesson. They're going to come sack Rome. That's what you always did in ancient times if you got mad. You come sack Rome. So the Pope says, I need some help. Charlemagne, can you please come down, bring your armies, and defend me? So he does. He defends the Pope, and he defeats the Lombards in 772. This is uh, uh, representing him later. Later he will build a, uh, a city. Today it's in Germany. He'll build a new city out in the forest. He clears some land, and he builds a new city. He builds a castle. He builds a church. And so he's holding a represent, representation of that in his hands here. So now we're up to 799, and there's a new pope, Leo III. And he has run out of Rome. He comes to Charlemagne, and he says, Bring me back to Rome. Let's go with your armies. Restore me as pope. You're a pope that gets kicked out. You just go get an army and come back and take it. This is how corrupt a Roman church is getting at this time. It's all about power, politics, control. So the Pope is restored by Charlemagne in 800. And uh, Charlemagne says, hey, Pope, I did you a favor. You do me a favor. On Christmas Day, I want you to come and I want you to declare me the emperor of the Romans. Which might sound like, okay, that's just the people in Rome. But remember, the Frankish kingdom is huge. Rome is down in Italy. Uh, Frankish kingdoms in modern day area of France. He's not only saying, I'll protect you in this part of Italy, but also the idea of emperor of the Romans means he really has a right to all the western lands that Rome once ruled. So the, in the east, they're not going to like that because there's only one emperor, and that's the emperor in Constantinople, the Byzantine emperor, eastern Roman empire. So they're very upset at this. They think it's an offense. They're the true rulers of the Roman Empire. And the only reason they can't take it back is because these once barbarian kings keep defeating them in battle and they've given up. Uh, so Charlemagne, he sends ambassadors to the east and he, he proposes a marriage to Irene. Maybe if I marry the princess there, everything will be fine. But the people in the east want to have nothing to do with that. They won't allow it. So Charlemagne just starts taking territory after territory, expanding his empire. He goes uh, east to the Germanic tribes that are still pagan, and he tries to bring them uh, true Christianity. Some are pagan, and some are also Arians. Remember, Arianism lives on for a long time, and he wants to bring them the true Trinitarian Christianity, what's called Nicene Christianity on the slide here. 
Charlemagne's also known for ushering in a renaissance because he realizes, look, we are Christians. We're, we're inheritors of the once great Roman Empire that was Christian before it disappeared. But we're just a bunch of barbarians. Our ancestors were barbarians. We don't really have the, the fine learning and academics and Bibles. And he realizes we can't even speak Latin very well. Um, some of our manuscripts that we use to read the Bible in Latin are corrupt. And so he feels pretty convicted about this, and he starts a new renaissance. Here is uh, what his kingdom looked like in purple. Um, he also takes, an 814, by 814, he takes all the yellow. Now he says to the Pope, I'll protect you, but you can keep the green. The green is the papal states or papal states. This will last quite a while. The Pope will have land. He'll have an army. The Pope even has a small army in these lands. Um, but this is Charlemagne's empire. And it's pretty much France and Germany today with the top part of Italy. Now when he dies, it'll be divided up into three parts. And that's where the red lines show. There's going to be a western Frankish kingdom, a central kingdom, and an eastern Frankish kingdom. These are his sons, Charles the Bald, Lothair, and Louis the German. The interesting names they have, Charles the Bald. So Charlemagne, he's, he's not very educated. He realizes, if I'm going to be the Christian emperor, I need to do something about scholars and scholarship and academics. So he launches what's called the Carolingian uh, Renaissance, or you can be more scholarly, Carolingian if you want. It's kind of like Augustine or Augustine. Um, Charlemagne's interests in scholarship were practical, and he was interested in reforming the church. He felt like that the church in his empire, and his kingdom, wasn't as good as it could be. It wasn't like the church in Rome. So he wanted to bring up the standards. He wanted to educate all the priests or, or the pastors. They couldn't even pray in Latin because they didn't know Latin. They couldn't conduct church services rightly in Latin. And by this time, there's a lot of superstition already creeping into the church. So, you know, if, if you don't say the, the Latin, the hocus-pocus stuff during the Mass, during the Communion... That could be bad. You know, you could be cursing people instead of blessing them. And so they felt like that needed to be fixed. He especially did. And he said, how can God understand what the clerics are saying if they don't know Latin? Now, that's really interesting thinking, isn't it? God who knows all languages. We could say design language in general. I think he knows whatever language we're praying in. He, he, he can understand us. But by this time, Latin itself is, is superstitious. It's, it's becoming the heavenly language of the West. Because if you're in his kingdom, you don't speak Latin in everyday language. What do you speak? Some kind of early French language. You don't speak uh, Latin. And so let's learn it, he says. So he starts hiring people to help with this, bringing people in. And uh, copied manuscripts of the Bible were in Latin. But they had been susceptible to scribal errors and interpolations, which made it difficult to understand the original meaning of God's word. So if all you have is some Latin manuscripts of the New Testament, and you hear something's wrong with one of those, maybe a mistake has been made in copying, but you don't have any scholars around to check it. So what do you do? You don't even know. Is your theology right? So certain passages of the Bible might say very different things depending on where the manuscript had been copied. Spoken Latin was changing into the modern Romance languages. So what we're seeing is an early version of, of French, early uh, versions of Spanish, different uh, Italian, different Romance languages, which are really the languages of the people who live in that area mixed in with some Latin. 
So this led to some major problems Charlemagne wants to address. This is a picture of, supposedly it's Charlemagne's throne. Uh, it's a very Roman-like chair made out of stone. It's in, um, it's in the palace, what's left of his palace. It's been somewhat restored in Aachen in Germany. And uh, supposedly that is the chair that he sat in. And there's good thinking as far as that's probably accurate. Um, to address these problems, Charlemagne recruited scholars to come to his court, this new city that he built called Aiken. And he wants to establish, this is what he said, correct, legible, and uniform copies of crucial religious texts to raise the general level of education within the Frankish Empire, especially the clergy. So there's somewhat of a minor renaissance in the church at this time. And it's good for us today because there's going to be a lot of copying of manuscripts. So this will help us, at least in the West, to determine the tradition of biblical uh, manuscripts on that side. So he hires a guy, um, the most influential scholar in this Renaissance, Alcuin of York, an Anglo-Saxon, an English person from, uh, that he had met in Italy. So what's interesting is, but between Rome and England, which is what we call France today, Charlemagne's empire, they had forgotten Latin. They had become less educated. But way out in Britain, they're more educated in Latin. They can understand these things better. And so he runs into an English guy, an Anglo-Saxon, and he says, please come, I'll pay you lots of money, come and start this uh, renaissance. So Alcuin does, he's, he's pretty famous now, based on a lot of the things that he did. He prepared new editions of texts, such as the Bible, and he also copied uh, an ancient book, which we'll talk about later, called The Rule of St. Benedict, uh, one of the things that monasteries use to guide them through their everyday life. Um, so they dug through the archives for old copies of texts. They gathered various copies they found. They identified them. They eliminated many of the errors that they found, interpolations. Then they published new corrected versions of books throughout the empire. So this may not sound like much fun, but this is like us getting the Legacy Standard Bible that just came out. I mean, that's exciting if you're kind of nerdy. and Even if you're not nerdy, that's exciting because it's a good translation. But if you dig into the, the Greek today in the New Testament you realize something like the Legacy Standard Bible is a good change in direction for translations. So many translations are getting more and more watered down, more and more gender neutral, more and more liberalized. And it was somewhat like that. It wasn't liberal so much back then, but just errors were creeping into the text of Scripture and other books, and they wanted to fix that. So Carolingian scholars tried to impose a single Christian liturgy. So here's what we're starting to see. You can't just worship the way you want in your church. There needs to be some order, and it needs to all look like we say it should look. So you're getting a mixing of church and state here. And uh, they wanted this new order, and they said it goes back to Gregory the Great. It's the Gregorian sacramentary, and it's used by the popes in Rome, so everybody should do it like this. So now you're seeing a standardization of worship. What you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to say, how you're supposed to go through a church service. Today, if you've ever been in a Catholic or even maybe Episcopalian, sometimes high Presbyterian churches, there's a very specific liturgy. And you're supposed to do that. It's considered to be the best way to worship. Well, some of that idea starts way back in this time, in the 800s. The Vulgate Bible is the Latin translation. We've looked at the Vulgate translated um, by Jerome, one of the early church fathers. And Alcuin prepared it, a new version of it, 
And it did not replace all the other versions, but it did at least establish a norm against which other versions were measured. So we, we sort of uh, disparage the Vulgate today because we have the Greek text, and we can bring that straight to English. But if all you knew was Latin, and all you had was a Latin Bible, you still want the best Latin Bible that you can have. So why we can't, we can't excuse all the bad theology um, that comes up in the Middle Ages. We can at least understand why they would want the best copies of Scripture that they could find in translations. Okay, so let's move now from, from Charlemagne. So Charlemagne is taking over much of the West. He is organizing. He is trying to start this uh, religious renaissance. But let's go back now to the East. And we're going to go pretty quickly through this because it's not very much fun. The iconoclast controversy. Maybe you enjoy it more than I do, but it basically comes down to worshiping pictures, paintings. Are the paintings of holy people to be worshipped? Now you think that's silly, but it wasn't back then. Many people had already started to worship it, uh, worship these things. And even today, the Eastern Orthodox Church worships these. They, they brought some of these icon paintings to, uh, I think it was a Getty Museum. And if you were Eastern Orthodox, you would go through there bowing down to these things. And if you were anything else, you just looked at it as art. Well, this is part of their worship. So this erupts in the East. And the debate broke out in the Eastern Church over this use of icons. Images, really, that depicted Christ and other biblical saints. And people who endorsed the use of icons were the iconoduals. While those who opposed it were iconoclasts. Iconoclasts said, let's get rid of them, let's burn these things, they're idols. The iconoduals, iconoduals, they said, no, they're useful for worship. They help us Focus on Christ. If we stare at a picture of Jesus, it helps us to worship him. Much the same as uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, the arguments they use today. So here's an example of uh, a coin, I guess, with supposedly, yeah, the, the image of Jesus. I mean, nobody knows what he looks like. It's funny, all the images of Jesus, even the Mormon paintings today, they all look like a medieval blonde haired blue-eyed guy. Jesus wasn't in the Middle Ages. He didn't live in the Middle Ages. He didn't have blonde hair. He probably didn't have blue eyes. So it's, it's a very interesting idea. Um, so as icons became more and more prevalent, controversy erupts in the East. In 695, the Byzantine emperor Justinian II minted gold coins with the face of Christ on them. It continues. Um, it's really an extension of the Chalcedonian debate regarding the nature of Christ. You know, hey, if he's human then it's no big deal to put his image everywhere because he's fully human and, you know, just, just like us in many ways. So the iconoclasts, those who wanted to get rid of these, they were convinced that the two natures of Christ could not be adequately represented in an image. So this is important even for Protestants. What should we think about people who tried to depict Christ? On the one side, there's those who say, well, he just looked like us, so that's okay. But on the other side, he's not just man. He's also God. And how do you depict the God-man, which nobody describes in the Bible? They don't talk about his height, his hair color, his eye color, nothing. They could have written that. The apostles were around him all the time, but they don't write anything. They don't describe him at all. In fact, in Isaiah, it says no one would recognize him. No one. He, he just looked like anyone. So they said to make an icon, iconoclast, which is what most Protestants would be today, the iconoclast said to make an icon was only to represent his human side and thus separate the human from the divine. Thus they asserted that icons should be rejected. 
This was all the more true, they believe, because the second commandment forbids the use of images. This is the Protestant position today. The second commandment of the Ten Commandments forbids the use of any images, and the Old Testament forbids any worship of idols. But the other side, the ones who wanted to use them, said that the Incarnation superseded the second commandment. That's the Old Testament. Now we have Christ in the flesh. And he's the image of the invisible God. They cited Hebrews. And they said that these icons were not idols. Of course, they're not idols. They're just representations to help us look and focus on actual people. That's sort of the idea today. We're not bowing down to these statues as a God. We're just working through Mary and the statue of her to get to God. That's a bad argument. So we're back up to 730. Uh, Leo the third ordered that an icon of Christ be replaced with a simple cross. Part of this motivation seems to have been superstitious. So where does the cross come in as an image of worship? Not really until this time. Okay, if you guys want to focus on something, then let's just focus on a cross. Take out all these images, get rid of them. Um, Leo thought some of his recent military setbacks may have been from an overemphasis on the veneration of icons throughout the empire. So this guy in Constantinople, this Eastern Roman emperor, is not doing very well in battle. And uh, maybe, hey, superstitious, it won't hurt just to put the cross on everything. And uh, maybe it's these icons we're worshiping that God's unhappy with us about. A ban was placed on icons, and Germanus I, we'll call him the Pope in Constantinople. They call him the Patriarch just to separate him. But what does Patriarch mean? Father. What does Pope mean? Father. So this is the head honcho of the church in Constantinople. He loses his position because he tells the people not to worship icons. That's the problem here is whatever the people want, that's what the people are going to get. So they basically kicked him out. When news of this reached the West, Pope Gregory III condemns Leo's action. You can't ban icons. What's wrong with you, Germanus? So Leo dies in 740. His son, this is uh, the Emperor Leo. That's just a cartoon somebody made up here, a cartoon image of him. When Leo died in 740, his son, Constantine V, established the iconoclast position as dogma. So he says, look, I'm the emperor of the East now. There will be no icons. Get rid of them now. So he actively worked to rid the emperor of icons, and many were destroyed, meaning he sent people out to hunt them down, Hunt the icons down and burn them. Just pile up your paintings out in the yard and the soldiers will light them on fire. You think that's going to make people happy? It's not going to make people happy. So against that policy that Constantine V put in action, an underground movement started. Iconodules, the ones who wanted the icons. And the most prominent was John of Damascus. So John's known for some of his other writings because he's a monk and uh, he was in Syria. And his writings remain very influential in modern Eastern Orthodox circles. So you'll often run into this online. John of Damascus says these great and wonderful things. Wait till we get to the, the lectures on um, monasticism, monks. You're going to be amazed at what monks truly are, what they do, how it all came about. The weird things, especially the Syrian monks. They were, they were some of the crazier monks out there. So now we move on to Constantine's son, another Leo, Leo IV now they call him. He says, okay, I'm going to keep working like my father did to get rid of all these icons. This is ridiculous. Let's get rid of them. But his wife was secretly on the other side. Sounds like something out of a, a novel or a movie, right? The truth is always stranger than fiction. 
So he wants to destroy them because his father believed that. She wants to keep them. When he dies, she becomes the co-regent with her son. And whenever mommy says do something, right, the son is supposed to obey, even if he's the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. So Irene organized a new church council. She calls it the second council of Nicaea. Nicaea, the first one, was so awesome. We'll meet there again. This will be the second one. By this point, Protestants don't follow the councils anymore because it just gets into stuff about um, rulings they make that we can't even agree with. Not biblical. So Irene gets the council to overturn the previous council, and this is called the Seventh Ecumenical Council. So by that point, today, Protestants, our church, me, us, we can't agree with this stuff anymore. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Church considers this to be the last ecumenical council. So Protestants jump off the train before this, at least looking back. The Eastern Orthodox today say, this is the last one. We don't hold to any of the others after this. Now in the West, the Roman Catholics will hold many more councils. They're going to hold many more. So they participated in this council. And uh, the Pope at the time, Adrian I, sent two representatives, two legates. And they recognized the council. So why today do both Eastern Orthodox and Western Roman Catholics, why do those two big sections of Christianity use icons? Because they determined at this council that it was okay to do so. So her son, Leo, was succeeded by his son, Michael II, then grandson, Theophilus. When Theophilus died in 842, his wife, Theodora, became the co-regent of their son, Michael III. Look at all these fun names, right? In 843, Theodora had icons restored in the empire, following in the footsteps of Irene from 50 years earlier. Let's not just put them on the paintings and stuff. Let's actually put them on the coins that everybody touches every day. And uh, we'll use icons in our hands, in our pockets. We'll just be blessed all the time. All right, any questions on that section of Middle Ages? We've got about six more minutes, and we're going to let the kids come in and use this area for singing, so we'll end a bit early today. So let's stop for a second in the Middle Ages, because this is when the end times view changes. What was once popular becomes less popular, and what was not as popular becomes more popular. So there's a bit of a switch in the general idea of end times views in the church. And the reason we're going to stop is we don't want to get too far past Augustine because he really is a a major player in this. So how the future got lost in history, a premillennial perspective on the history of all millennialism. We won't come back to this for three weeks because by the way, we're not meeting here next week for this class. We'll just come to service at 1030. And then on the 2nd of January, we will also not have equipping classes. So don't just come at 1030, right? Come early, have coffee, fellowship. I'm just going to whet your appetite a bit on this. Remember, this is a premillennial perspective. I'm, of course, going to cite historical stuff. It's not just opinions and ideas. But even the amillennials today recognize many of these things got going with amillennialism with Augustine. So let's define some terms. I'm going to run through these real quick. These are simplified definitions. Amillennialism. That's if I say it slowly. Just run it all together. Amillennialism. The belief that the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 does not represent a specific period of time between Christ's first and second coming. Many Amils, for short, I'll just call them Amils, many Amils believe instead that the millennium refers to the heavenly reign of Christ that he's in today and the departed saints during the church age. Amillennialists usually understand Revelation 20 to mean that the return of Christ will occur at the end of history 
and that the church presently lives in the final era of history. So it's referred to as all millennial. Millennial is thousand years. All is no, basically no thousand years. So we are talking about a view here that says we're in the kingdom now. It's not specifically a thousand years. This age of the church growing, going out, making disciples, this is the kingdom. And then Christ comes back and there's a new heavens and new earth. So that's a very quick definition. There'll be lots of exceptions. You'll, you know, you'll run into somebody who says, that's not exactly what I believe. I have this little thing, that little thing. That's all these views. There's all kinds of little differences. This is just a general idea. Premillennialism, the view that the millennium follows the return of Christ. So this is the view that Christ will come back first. Then there'll be a thousand year kingdom. Then the new heavens and the new earth. In the teaching of some premillennialists, the millennium will begin supernaturally and cataclysmically, preceded by signs of apostasy, apostasy, worldwide preaching of the gospel, war, famine, earthquakes, the coming of the Antichrist, the great tribulation. Jesus will then return, rule on the earth with his saints for 1,000 years, during which time peace will reign. The natural world will no longer be cursed and evil will be suppressed. After final rebellion, God will crush evil forever judge the resurrected, non-believing dead, and establish heaven and hell. So if you read our doctrinal statement, if you're a member here, you have, you know, this lines up with our view of the end times here. Uh, Specifically, Revelation 20 and many of the Old Testament verses that we cite for that. The other view is post-millennialism. And of all the three views, this one probably has the most um, differences depending on who you talk to and what what group and, and what following. But generally... It's the idea that um, Christ comes back at the end of a kingdom period. So this is a view that Christ's second coming will follow the millennium. Some will say it's a thousand years. Others say it's, it's more spiritual. It's not actually a thousand years. But the idea is that Christ comes back after that. That is, his return is post-millennial. Post meaning after. Pre meaning before. Ah meaning not. So a post-millennialist assert that the millennium will come by the spiritual and moral influence of Christian preaching and teaching in the world. So as Christianity spreads and, and that influence goes out in the world, that will eventually start a, a millennial spiritual kingdom and then Christ will come back at a certain point. This will result in increased conversions, a more important role of the church in the world, earthly prosperity, the resolution of social ills, a general adoption of the Christian values. Evil will diminish until the time of Christ's second coming, which will mark as well the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment. So that's just a brief overview. There's three general positions. There are a few others like partial preterists and things. But these are the general positions when it comes to the millennium. Now you can go and slice and dice all these up, even post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath-trib. Most people think that's just the pre-mills who slice and dice that. But all these views have some kind of understanding of the tribulation. And there's also dispensational pre-mill, historical pre-mill. This is not a systematic theology class, so we won't go into those details. I do teach on that in systematic theology. Uh, I did that a couple years ago. And, and Lord willing, we'll try to cycle these major equipping classes around every few years or so. So we'll come back around to it. That's just your overview. You've got to remember that for three weeks from now. Um, and we'll just pick up there talking about why does the millennium matter. And I want to show you where we're going here. The study... Uh, of, of all millennialism, a different view than what we teach here. Why should we study it? We're going to talk about Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Lactantius, um, others like Barnabas, the writings of Barnabas, Tertullian, Cyprian, 
And then what happened that changed the early church's view that was mostly pre-mill into an all-mill view. And so we'll get into that, talk about replacement theology, allegorical hermeneutics, so much we're going to fly through. But Augustine basically is the father, and this is, most all-mills recognize this, Augustine as the father of all millennialism. I think I have a couple of those guys cited here. Yeah, so even Keith Matheson, who is, uh, lines up with more an all-millennial perspective, says early in his Christian life, Augustine had been attracted to millennialism, premillennialism, but he later rejected it and goes into the idea of an all-millennial view. So just enough to whet your appetite. Sorry, we can't get into it today. You know, next time everybody will show up and then visitors will even come into this class because we're talking about end times, right? That always like gets people going. But we are going to focus on what people believed about it in the early church into the Middle Ages and what the Roman Catholic Church started teaching on it as well. If you have questions, I'll be around. We're going to let the kids come in now after I pray. And uh, we can quietly talk in here or go into the foyer. They're going to be up here practicing their song for this morning's service. Father, we come to you in prayer just to give thanks for stimulating our minds and our hearts but especially our minds as we study history, as we study theology, as we consider how did the church get to this point today that we see so much bad teaching everywhere. We see such a connection with the the church and the, the governments of the world. How did we get to the point where idols are being worshipped? Thank you that we can study this history, that it hasn't been erased, that it hasn't been done away with, and we can learn about how to think properly when it comes to the study of Scripture. Let us not drift into those errors, but let us always focus on what Scripture teaches. In the name of our Lord, amen.